This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Richard, deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Um, I hope you all enjoyed as much as we did last week's episode, the 2000 Oscar flashback. It was a huge pleasure to record. It was a real pleasure to record it before the election so that we kind of had last week to focus on other things. Um, we got some great feedback on Twitter from people who seemed to enjoy it as a bit of escapism. Um, uh, Richard and Joanna, I don't know if you guys listened back to it, but it, it was nice to know it was out in the world uh, as the stress of last week unfolded, right? I listen back to every episode of this show. <laughs> which is a weird, you are a uh, heroic and brave man. Solipsistic quirk of mine. Um, yeah, it was so fun. It was so fun that I like kind of want to like officially promise that we will do more of it. It doesn't always have to be because there's some national <laughs> scary, anxious thing happening. But yeah, I think it was uh, it was good. And it also, you know, there were a lot of people online who were like weighing in on Twitter about like their 2000 memories. So it was fun. Very communal. Yeah. Well, since we were out last week, um, we're going to talk about movies today. There's a lot to talk about. Mank embargo is up. The Hillbilly Elegy embargo is up. The Crown's coming back. Um, but the election happened last week, and uh, Joe Biden won. And Saturday was a kind of explosion of celebration um, in person and on our Twitter feeds. Um, I don't know that we need to like make any bones about our political alliances here. How are you guys doing? How did last week go for you personally? <laughs> last week was personally bananas for me. But I feel like as of Saturday, like Saturday and Sunday, feeling a lot of joy. Monday, too, like we're recording this on Tuesday, just feeling a lot of like productivity and like like I cleared out something that was taking up a lot of space in my brain and emotional bandwidth, like concern about the election and then maybe uh, accumulated backlog from the last four years. So, um, yeah, I, I'm feeling pretty good even as even as the news continues to continue i'm still feeling pretty good yeah that news just keeps on continuing mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like old man river it just keeps on just he must know something he won't say nothing <laughs> yeah um yeah I, I i it was saturday um i actually very safely with a kind of my little i don't know what you call it pod bubble whatever mm-hmm. um had some friends up to my roof And that was already planned because it was going to be like the last nice Saturday of the year or something. And then it just happened like an hour before they came over. It was called. And so we had more reason to celebrate. Um, And I was thinking about it, though, in like a work circumstance. I mean, there are so many different facets of all of this that affects all of us every day, whether it's at work or not. But 
without forgetting all of the horrible social ills that this era has really, you know, like brought very much to the forefront of our consciousnesses, I will be excited in the near future to not have to always add the, well, in the age of Trump to a review, (laughs) (laughs) because I'm just sick of doing that. I mean, I guess I'll have to be, we'll have to all be looking at like, post-Trump movies or, 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 or art that can finally have the time now to talk about the Trump era, um, I am assuming it is over in January. So I think, yeah, I think that hopefully we, with all the energy about being nervous about him in particular, we can turn and focus more uh, holistically on other things, which I think will be good. Yeah, I think it will be, you know, January 20th is Inauguration Day, um, not to make everything about the Oscars, but because that's what we do here, just thinking about the coming award season we have, like in January and February will be when kind of a lot of the traditional precursor awards will happen. The mood of the country is just going to be different at that point. And I think it'll be really interesting to see what kind of movies we want to watch, what kind of stuff we want to talk about. It's uh, it's shifting uh, just as it shifted in 2016. So um, that transition is going to be interesting. Katie, can we talk about the most important thing about the election uh, that you decided you wanted to give me some credit for? Uh, <laughs> is it Steve Kornacki? It's Kornacki Fever. Um, <laughs> I obviously don't deserve any credit for Kornacki Fever, but uh, Steve Kornacki, who, uh, if you were not obsessively watching election coverage, uh, was sort of like the math, is the math whiz that hangs out over on MSNBC uh, and, and runs what's called the big board. On their show. And, and like other news networks have this. John King is is the equivalent over on CNN. You know, Kornacki's not uh, unique in this. He is just unique in his presentation style. And the way the big board, their board is set up is really intuitive to me, at least to help me understand what's going on. Anyway, I've watched Kornacki like lose his marbles on the big board in previous elections. And I know that it's like it's really good television, um, not to sound shallow about it, but like in all the emotional emotional turmoil there's like comfort in someone who's just like coolly doing math in front of you and like all this sort of stuff like that. So last Monday, well before Kurdaki fever struck the nation uh, in a serious way, I wrote a piece for VF about like how to watch the election. And my biggest recommendation was MSNBC because of some of the other figures they have on there, but also the joy of watching Steve Kurdaki on the big board. And then it exploded. And then I told Katie that my personal sickness is now I don't love Steve Kurdaki as much anymore because <laughs> everyone else loves him now. So, uh, you know, anyway, I think that was just a really fascinating media story that went along with uh, the, because like we've never had an election like this. We've never had to we've had contested elections. We've never had an election where eking it out vote by vote over many days was like a thing we were collectively watching as a nation, you know? Yeah. And I mostly hated that process. Like I felt exhausted and burned out by the whole like batches of uh, votes thing until Friday when I think the like the writing was on the wall to an extent that it felt safe to watch. Uh, So I watched some Kornacki. Um, There was a video of a guy on CNN. I don't remember who he was, who like was in Maricopa County and got a batch of numbers and then just like was doing long division on a piece of paper, like on national television, which is like a true nightmare. Like I think I've literally had that nightmare before. And it, there was just so much to like watch and absorb and Twitter got good for a while. Um, what a time. Didn't ex- didn't expect that. I was proudly touting to friends this weekend that I only watched, I think, a grand total of 15 minutes of cable news during mm. all of last week. I'm so impressed. Uh, and then they were like, well, what did you do? And I was like, oh, wait, I was on Twitter the whole time. <laughs> 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 Which is definitely worse. So I get no credit um, yeah. at all. I also, on I think Wednesday night last week, I watched Citizen Kane, which we can talk about a little bit when we talk about Mank. Um, so movies as escapism, uh, whether it's the 2000 Oscar movies or something else, um, I thought had a lot of value last week, too. Yeah, I almost wish we I had more 2000. Actually, I did. I think I, wa- I watched 
all of Aaron Brockovich after we recorded our <laughs> episode. Because <laughs> I was just like on a roll and wanted to see more from the year 2000. So. You were you were in the mood. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's let's fast forward to the present and where we are now, where uh, Oscar season continues, even though uh, I think if you were an Oscar voter, it might not exist for you at all yet. But uh, one big player has been revealed uh, today as we record this uh, in the form of Richard's review and many others. Uh, Netflix's Hillbilly Elegy, Ron Howard's adaptation of J.D. Vance's book. Uh, it's out in theaters this week, I believe, and then will be on Netflix around Thanksgiving weekend. Um, Richard, is this a movie you should watch over Thanksgiving with your family? Well, I mean, if you want, like, you know how you like the, the whole Seinfeld episode where they like drink red wine and turkey to, to get someone to fall asleep? So, they can, <laughs> so if you don't have enough red wine and turkey, you could just put on Hillbilly Elegy and fall asleep yeah. because holy mm-hmm. cow, is it boring? <laughs> uh, and it shouldn't be boring. It's about really big things, serious things. Um, but the way that Ron Howard uh, has... Staged the film with Vanessa Taylor's uh, screenplay adaptation of J.D. Vance's memoir, a very controversial memoir, though very, a very popular one. It's just like it's the most like plug and play dated kind of Hollywood prestige where the actors, Amy uh, Adams and Glenn Close, kind of, you know, put the bad wig on and musty their face up with whatever, like less makeup than normal. And or like just, more red eye makeup, maybe. Yeah. Well, yes, exactly. It's it's less in some places and more in others. <laughs> um, I mean, granted, they do show footage of the real uh, of JD Vance's real family at the end of during the closing credits, and they did a pretty good job, at least in, in Glenn Close's case, of making her look like the real person. But it's just, I mean, Amy Adams is good, but Glenn Close is is kind of more in in line with Ron Howard's sort of just like view from on high, you know kind of out of touch ivory tower kind of thing where like like it's it feels it feels i think it would be offensive to conservatives who really value the book it's offensive to uh more progressive critique you know critics of the book it just like it satisfies nobody least of all anyone just looking for an engrossing kind of drama um it's just i think it's a complete across the board failure uh it's really it's a lot it's just a lot of acting a lot of uh, kind of like soupy ideas. Uh, and I feel like one of the most offensive things to me about it in a way is, as you were saying, Richard has got like, it's about really big stuff, but like, isn't really about any of it. Like, it manages just to kind of dodge every possible topic that it could bring up to just like be about anything other than like this one man succeeding, which is not the most interesting version of the story. Yeah, it's about this one man succeeding. And, and you know, the criticisms of, of J.D. Vance in, in the book have long been that it grafts a certain narrative onto poor people, poor white people in America that kind of blames them for their poverty and, and, and all this stuff. And and he's this guy who lifted himself up by, you know, these bootstraps for lack of a less cliche term, and then went to go work for Peter Thiel as a venture capitalist. And it's like, so is that supposed to be inspiring? Like, I don't really, you know, and I, I think that the movie doesn't even necessarily have to grapple with the politics of it. It can just be about like this kid, dealing with a really tricky um, home life with his mother, who's a drug addict and his grandmother who has her own sort of past sins to atone for. And yet it, it doesn't even do that convincingly while also kind of making it feel like this, this story of this one special boy who's constantly trying to be, you know, thwarted by the annoying women in his life. I, I just, I don't, you know, I think it's okay to, to, to decontextualize the movie from the politics of the book. But you have to do that carefully and you have to like then provide something else that's worth watching. And this movie didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Hillbilly Elegy, the tryptophan of movies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
so there was a lot of conversation earlier on before people saw the movie of Glenn Close and an Oscar campaign. And my sense from hearing from people who have seen it is that they no longer feel that that's the case. It, you know, if, if that's true, you know, I know we're about to talk about Mank. Does that mean just like all eyes on Amanda Seyfried? Like, where where are we with everything? I think probably the supporting actress race is weird this year. Like, it's emptier than any other category. I feel like it's the only place where you kind of see the lack of major movies this year because the other acting categories are pretty stacked. It probably is Amanda Seyfried. It's a the supporting actress can the supporting actress race is just really strange this year. It's empty in a way that a lot of the other acting categories aren't. So if you look on Gold Derby, where you know some friends and colleagues of ours make their predictions, like you still see Glenn Close at the top of a lot of the list, Amanda Seyfried, um, and then like maybe Yu Jung Yoon from uh, Minari who plays the grandma, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Like Maria Bakalova starts getting in there. There just there aren't a lot of people to fill the category. So I think Glenn Close getting a nomination is still really possible. Um, but I would give Amanda Seyfried the edge at this point. That's interesting. And I like uh, it goes to something that I mean, we have a lot to talk about today. So I don't know that we want to, you know, pause you oh, for a long time. Oh, we're but here. Like... What else is there to get into? <laughs> well, but I just, um, you know, I was thinking more and more about the conversation we had several weeks ago about like, what does the award season word of mouth momentum look like, you know, in a world where we don't have uh, film festivals or, you know, screenings or parties or whatever to sort of whisper in each other's ears uh, during. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah. I, I, you know, we're, we're now post the window where TIFF would have been, we're post the window where several other film festivals would have been, and they existed in online, uh, you know, online platforms. Everyone did a great, uh, you know, as best as they could, a great job in all of this. I guess what I, I feel like I'm seeing is that I don't see those conversations permeating, those narratives coalescing except for the one around, around Chadwick Boseman that's the only one that I see like coalescing and permeating in that kind of way well I think that's kind of why Glenn and Hillbilly crashes as hard as it does because it seemed like okay well there's something you know and mm-hmm. it felt it feels familiar the the sort of trappings of the role the trappings of the you know she just lost one and now she, this is here's her second chance you know in out of many to to win an right. Oscar but um, I think I think plenty of people have won Oscars for movies that have not been universally beloved or have gotten mixed reviews. But I think that this thing is DOA. I, I mean, I like um, my mind. Very negative review is by f- no means the only one. So I would be really surprised. But I think in general about these Oscar conversations is we all might have to start kind of accepting the fact that they might never really coalesce for good yeah. because, yeah. You know, we're going to get to see stuff because we work in this field and we have to put together an awards issue and we have to, you know, do interviews and whatever. But like, you know, this conversation does to to some extent, at least rely on people not in this immediate industry, seeing things and talking about things and rooting for things. And I just don't know how that's going to happen this year where I mean, it could have with something like Hillbilly LG because it's readily available on Netflix, as is Mank. But um, for movies that aren't available in the same way, I don't know. It's going to think it's going to be really tricky. And also it's going to start in February. Like we have so like the end of February is when the deadline is like it's so far in the future at this point that like the narratives can like recoalesce. Uh, it, like, like we think something is dead and it'll come back and surprise us. Like it's possible. I suppose it's just like, you know, even for 
it's hard to feel like anything has any permanence, yeah. you know, in the largely streaming world of all this. Because, like, even something like Trial of Chicago 7, which I loved and was pretty widely popular, feels like A, a million years ago and B, didn't even permeate the way that something that kind of crowd-pleasing might, you know? Yeah. So, um yeah, it, I mean, it, like, it feels like everyone has been election distracted the same way that we were. So, like, totally, maybe totally. now is the time to, like, focus on something else. I was thinking about, um, I feel like, I don't think I quoted this on the show yet, but um, Mark Harris, who's been on the show before, um, tweeted on October 30th, literally the only Oscar buzz I've heard from actual Oscar voters is, am I getting screeners? I cannot overstate the degree to which this race so far does not exist for them. Yeah, Which makes I mean, perfect sense. Why? Why would it? Okay, it feels early. I'm I'm too early. That might be no, the no, problem. No, no, no. But, like, I, but, but I also but, see I also see it as oh because election distraction too. But like I also see it. I guess as partly my responsibility to try to get people excited and to watch these movies. Yeah. But another problem is like a bunch of movies that are coming out. I'm not like super excited about. So yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the other calculation that that was probably impossible to make correctly when they were, you know, slotting films is that like these movies, Hillbilly Elegy, Ammonite, Mank is coming out a little bit later, are following the normal schedule. Right. And but as you said, Katie, like we're, it's it's much longer. So, yeah, I, I think that I think that the conversations, at least that I'm having with myself about like what have the good things been so far <laughs> are for top 10 lists and like my critics group votes, which are which are happening within the next month. Right. That's um, going to be really interesting when the New York Film Critics Circle weighs in, because um, I I don't think there's anything that is going to wind up being ineligible. Like Minari is scheduled to come out sometime early next year, but it, I would imagine that they're going to qualify it so that New York Film Critics Circle can vote for it. Um, like maybe that will be when a conversation starts or at least when people are like, all right, I guess I'll hit play on Trial of Chicago 7 on Netflix. Right. Yeah. There was some debate among critics groups about like when we should vote. Should we follow the Academy's, you know, thing about like extending the the window and ultimately that was decided no we, it's for the movies of that year and the, the year ends on December 31st but I think in that way and you know uh, for all of the fears that that would make next year's awards redundant because we'd be awarding things that were the Oscars had awarded the year previous you know all that confusion I but I do think that the critics groups can actually help set the tone um, in an even bigger way than they normally do mm-hmm. absolutely and, and also like it, it seems like the delay was meant to uh, you know accommodate for something like Dune or West Side Story to come out in January and February and most of the studios have kind of rightly assumed right. that theaters will not be back to normal by then so there's just there's not going to be some weird outlier that you can't vote for I don't think and now uh, they have to edit because they're editing you know Dune and West Side Story into one movie because it's just that's the only way they can <laughs> oh, do yeah, it. Oh, yeah, what's I do? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, no, I, um, I'll i have a piece up uh, on VF.com about this um, a little later this week. But, like, a similar thing is happening with the Emmys where the TV Academy uh, won't set the eligibility window. And that means that the studios and networks are uncertain where to put their, like, glossy prizes because they usually plunk them in, like, May, April, May. And they're oh, so like, well, they think they're going to change the window, but they haven't confirmed it yet? Right. And I think what the TV Academy is doing is the same thing that the Motion Picture Academy did, which is it's 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 hoping like it can set a window that like a succession season two or season three could get it. You know what I mean? Like there's a bunch of shows that I believe it like wants to have in contention. And so it wants to wait to see if like, you know, Russian Doll or some of the other like oh, buzzy awards things will be able to get their next seasons up and off the ground in mm-hmm. time for Emmys next year. It's like a, it's like a game of chicken, kind of. Yeah, you know. But there are some TV shows that are successfully in production right now. It, yeah. Right? 
Yes, but there's but uh, they're unsure if they're going to sh- have to shut back down. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, so they at least y- have yes. the distribution model for television is at least in much better shape than it is for movies, unless you're on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. But like the problem is they don't know if they'll be able to delay the plan on these productions, given what's happening with COVID numbers. There's other stuff that's easier to produce, like uh, reality TV or yeah. um, documentaries or animated work, you know, that you can do more safely uh, in a COVID environment. But like succession, how do you film all over New York? I don't you know, I don't know how you do it. So it's something to think about. Yeah. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists— Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Um, well, we can get back to talking about what we do have uh, on our hands, at least for now. Richard, you mentioned Ammonite, which we discussed when it uh, played at Toronto live the, no, oh, these many months ago. Um, it's now coming out in theaters, I believe. It is out this week in some extent. Um, Richard, does this movie still exist? Well, I think that's another one where we have to have these conversations about is like, a movie can easily be killed if it's just getting mixed reviews at a regular Toronto Film Festival. Yeah. At a virtual one, like, I feel like it just, it might as well not exist. I mean, and that's a terrible thing to say about a movie that people worked hard on and, like, actually does yeah. have some worthy things in it. Kate Winslet's really good in it. Yeah. Um, but it's so small and so devoid of texture that you can grab onto you know it has plenty of aesthetic stuff to appreciate but like you don't you know I didn't really feel much watching it and I just don't know if that little movie can really go the distance given all of the challenges set before it in a normal year let alone this year so I don't know I think that I hope that people seek it out because I think Francis Lee's work is worth seeing and then there is good acting in it but it doesn't strike me as a movie that will be unfortunately remembered as anything but kind of like an odd curio from a very odd year. Yeah. Like I think something as small and intimate as Ammonite, um, which I watched last night, it can feel like something absolutely worth seeking out, absolutely worth beating the drum for in this pandemic. I don't want some of the smaller films to get lost in the shuffle. Um, This just inspired no great emotion in me. Katie and I were talking about it a little bit last night. I think the last 10, 15, 20 minutes maybe is like a movie that I enjoyed watching, but I had to watch the rest of the movie leading up to it, which I didn't enjoy, which is odd because usually I like um, soggy lesbian stories. So um, <laughs> it's very soggy <laughs> uh, and very much about like literally like repressing emotions. Like you say, they yeah. inspire emotions in you. It is about two people who like have been told not to have feelings ever. And like even when they finally find each other, they 
do their best not to express them, which is um, yeah. But I'm like, that's usually my bread and butter. Repression, (laughs) come on. Uh, So I really wanted to love it, and unfortunately, I did. But Kate Winslet is great uh, in it, and and it's it's a, a role that I don't think. We often see that level of like repressed sternness from her. Um, maybe I'm misremembering, but I thought she was quite good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny. I, I, there's this show that I think Linda Holmes from Pop Culture Happy Hour slash NPR turned me on to called Grand Designs. That some old episodes of it are on Netflix. It's a British architecture show. Show. Yeah. Anyway, I watched one last night where. Um, this engineer and his wife are, are building a home in the countryside of England that is modeled after the shape of a, of a fossil of an ammonite. And they keep <laughs> saying ammonite in the episode. And I'm such an idiot. I was like, oh, so it's a real world uh, word. I mean, I knew that it was, <laughs> but that's, I think, going to be ammonite's most lasting impact. Of being on great designs. Being, being be, uh, knowing what ammonite is. That's <laughs> yeah, true. We all learned something about fossils. Yeah. yeah. Um, I should say, after my muddled introduction of it, it is in theaters uh, this week, November 13th, and then it will be on premium on demand on December 4th. I don't know, like, if we're going to call this a real factor in things, but it is still remarkably hard to know how and where to watch something unless it's on Netflix, which maybe it's just proof of which how much they've colonized our brains. I know. Yeah. Um, although I was, um, we'll talk about this when the movie actually comes out, but the trailer for Happiest Season came out this week and just seeing like, it's going to be on Hulu. I was like, great. I know yeah. how to find that. Like, that yeah. is clear. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. I think it was a Sony release uh, originally. Um but I appreciate a little bit of clarity there. Um, speaking of how to watch things and where to watch them, and also speaking of gay movies, can I give a little plug to an, a nice little movie that I didn't get a chance to review this week? But I would um, love that. I think people should seek out. So there's a movie called Dating Amber that is already, it, like as the, today, we're recording today on the 10th, it's available now on digital and on demand. It used to be called Beards, which I think is a better title. And that title should maybe give you some indication of what it's about. It's about two Irish high schoolers in the 1990s she is a lesbian. He is gay. and Well, he's realizing that he's gay. She's very much more, you know, assured in her identity. And they say, you know, just to get through high school, let's just pretend we're dating. So it's kind of a little bit of a riff on the easy A thing from, you know, 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really charming and actually kind of moving. And, and it does some interesting things with gay high school cliches. It kind of subverts them here and there, does more thoughtful things with them. Uh, Lola Pettigrew, who plays Amber, is great. Um, and then Finn O'Shea, who plays Eddie, is kind of becoming the new, like, young interpreter of, of, of like, gay experience because he's also uh, in this movie called Handsome Devil where he technically doesn't play a gay character, but, like, it's a very gay-centered movie. Um, although he does play straight in Normal People. People will recognize him as Jamie from Normal People. Anyway, it's a sweet little movie. Uh, it made me cry in a way that Am and I didn't. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's e- it should be easy to watch. So I, I think if people are looking for something along those lines, um, there it is. Where is it watchable? Just digital on rental. Yeah. Okay. The yeah. Okay, to go back to movies that uh, not everyone can see yet, but actually has been viewable in a lot of homes. Uh, I finally watched Minari, um, which Joanna, you watched via a film festival. I think there have been yeah. a lot of. Uh, there's been kind of a rolling series of virtual film festival premieres for this movie, so that yeah. if you're press, there's publicists who will let you know it's happening. But a lot of people have been able to see it kind of in the normal way they would during normal festivals, where it's like, hey, this is playing near me. I'm going to get a ticket. It feels like the perfect movie to do something like that with. It premiered at Sundance earlier this year, so it's been kind of building buzz forever and ever and ever. And 
I watched it after the election results were settled, which I think was exactly the way to do it because I got to like feel <laughs> good about the American dream, and, like the process <laughs> of our country. Um, I mean, it's not coming out um, formally, as we said earlier, until January or February. So we've got a while. But I just wanted to kind of say that I got to see it and love on it a little bit because I thought it was so great. Yeah, I remember Richard gushing about it out of Sundance. And at the time, or maybe more recently when we were talking about it, anyway, at some point you were describing it and I was like, oh, is it like the film In America? And you were like, yeah. And I, so I like had that film, which I love and have seen repeatedly uh, in my mind as I was watching it. And it sort of didn't disappoint in that way where you're just like so anxious for this young family as they try to like put down you know, roots, sorry to use a roots, I tried to back out of a farming metaphor and couldn't, um, you know, in in this uh, new community that they have moved to from a different place in the United States. But I don't know. I, I really I loved I loved this movie. I love Stephen Young. And, and Stephen Young's narrative is one that I think is permeating as well. I think a part of that has to do with, yeah, a little bit of identity politics that like, you know, I was thinking about how like publicists only have the opportunity to really craft a narrative or they have a better opportunity to craft a narrative through profiles than film festival buzz, which is something that they didn't have as much control over. And so I was thinking about this piece of place in variety about Stephen and how he would be like the first Asian American to be nominated for best actor. And that's which a huge is deal. Crazy. Oh, uh, it's 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 ridiculous and a huge deal. For and, best actor or actress, right? Yeah. And yeah. He, you know, a lot of people were were really stumping for him uh, uh, for a burning, which was two years ago at this point, right? To get nominated for that, uh, you know, the the love of Stephen Young and what he's chosen to do with his post Walking Dead, his Walking Dead, Walking Money, you know, like um, he's made great choices. He's really, really effective. You know, this this is this is the the story of like repressed emotion, but emotion that you feel. You know what I mean? Like that's what Minari is. Um, you know, and I just I I think he's incredible, and I loved the movie. So yeah, yeah. Richard, has it um has it stuck with you well since you saw it so long ago at this point? It definitely has. I mean, I was talking with a colleague from a different publication uh, recently about like, oh, well, you know, it's like almost mid-November, like time to think about like top 10 list because like I think mine is due in like a month, um, which is crazy. And I we were trying to think, like, what would our top 10 be? What would our t- number one be? And I was sitting there kind of quietly. And then like a couple minutes later, I just burst out, Minari. <laughs> and so that doesn't mean it didn't stick with me. I mean, it, it actually kind of does. Um, but it's such a small sort of unassuming movie that it doesn't insist itself into a sort of prestige consciousness the way that some other films do or attempt to do. It just really exists on its own terms. I think it has a certain humility to it that I wish more autobiographical film would. Uh, mm. You know, it, it doesn't try <laughs> like, to turn... like a hillbilly elegy per se. Yeah, yeah maybe <laughs> it doesn't turn, you know, this story into anything bigger than itself. And yet we in the audience are able to see the vastness that that story implies. And um, I really appreciate that. And it's got great performances. And I think this is now going to be the third time I've said this on this podcast, but it has Stephen Young as a sweaty farmer. And I'm, I'm just <laughs> I just think people need to remember that. <laughs> I also uh, it occurred to me it might be the beginning of the reclamation of the red hat because he wears this big red hat um, <laughs> yes, like, as a yeah. farmer. And it's just like, nope, that doesn't belong to anybody. This Korean farmer can wear it just like anybody else. <laughs> yeah. And I loved it. And I loved the like 80s aesthetic of it and everything. I just thought, you know, 
I don't want to talk about it too early. I want to keep talking about it, but I I really think this is a special film that I hope people seek out in the near. And I I I, I wanted to respond really quickly to something you said earlier, Katie, about the film festivals. Um, I loved. Um, I believe I'm so sorry. I can't remember. I believe it was a, a Boston Film Festival. I think is the screening link that I got, which meant I got like a local programmer giving like a little on camera introduction. And that was lovely to like, just to see, you know, like some nice bearded fellow up on stage with the microphone, like being kind of awkward in that film festival way. I just felt really good because I hadn't been to a film festival this year and there was a Q and a after and all that sort of stuff. So there, there is this great online film festival experience that is actually, I think more democratically available for people. You know, you you say it's just like previous years. I'm going to say it's better than previous years because for people who can't travel to film festivals to, for people who, you know, whatever, I've seen a lot of our listeners take advantage of the fact that they can grab a ticket for this film festival or that film festival and, you know, and are able to see a bunch of these movies earlier. So, like, I think for the people, for permeating the larger conversation, we're having some challenges. For the people who are really into Oscars in the first place and listen to a podcast like this, they're even better informed than they have been in previous years. They have even more access to these movies at times when we have access to the movies. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, and I was thinking about, like, um, Call Me By Your Name, which had it premiered at Sundance and then played every festival on the earth. And I think I remember at the time we kind of talked about, like, did they, like, overdo it? Did they peak too early? I don't know that that's possible this year for something like Minari, especially because it has such an emotional pull to it. It feels like it's going to just, like, build and build and build until it becomes, like, the one movie everyone has to see, which exa- is exactly what you want. I hope so. I mean, I I remember being really mad because I didn't. I don't think I got to see Call Me by Your Name till January. <laughs> I was really mad about it. They didn't have uh, enough uh, online film festivals back then. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, Minari. I'm glad you got to see it, Kitty. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q and A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Uh, so as we also mentioned earlier, Mank uh, is going to be in theaters this week. It's going to be on Netflix on December 4th. So we're going to probably talk about it again in more detail when everyone is able to see it. And I think we would all agree everyone should see it. Um, but it's been kind of this like big, it is the it was the last like big looming Oscar movie, I think, for a lot of people um, as everything else kind of moved off the calendar. Although Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, I think, is also still waiting in the wings from Netflix. Um, Richard, you reviewed it last week. Uh, how did it live up to the hype? Well, I'll say this. Uh, It was a really hard review to write, partly because I don't know my Hollywood history as closely as I should, but also because I think the movie is doing something surprisingly subtle, considering that it's a big David Fincher labor of love about, you know, and and movies about movie making always seem to really gesture toward themselves and be like, look, look, look. And this one has some of those trappings. I mean, you know, the production design is really lovely. The cinematography is gorgeous. You have Gary Oldman, you know, fresh off an Oscar win, giving another big performance as another real life person. But I think that what was so surprising about it is that what it's really saying, which I think is not so much about film or art's ability to affect change, but rather its ability to at least react to injustice or or, or bad things uh, is a much subtler, more humble estimation of the power of art in a time when any sort of cultural plaints seem to be falling at least on deaf ears, at least in Washington. And 
I really like the way that Fincher and his dad, Jack Fincher, wrote the, the screenplay, that they they focus on not how Citizen Kane was made, not the, the, the wars between Wells and Mankiewicz, not, you know, William Randolph Hearst attacking the film and, and refusing to show it in theaters and all that stuff, but actually what inspired the movie. And I think it's it's both subtle and, and, and direct about that. And, and I really appreciated that it really is about one guy who has been complicit in a system in a sort of sozzled, passive way, realizing and finding within him the ability to critique and 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 do so in in really artful but also potent and really pointed fashion yeah i like i didn't know really what mank was going to be about other than kind of the basics like you think it's been sold as kind of the making of citizen kane but it's not really that at all and it's a not really a biopic of herman mankowitz either but just kind of like finding the threads of this man's life that went into the movie and following it back to a plot about upton sinclair and socialism in the california governor's race which i did not see coming um and i learned a lot i don't know how much any of you guys knew about any of that beforehand but it was a history lesson for me yeah the propaganda stuff i i wasn't aware of i thought that was fascinating yeah, and it's not, you know, I was telling um, my husband about watching it, and he was like, I just don't think I need, like, a movie about, like, the golden age of Hollywood. And I was like, I, that's not really what this is. Like, it is a pretty clear-eyed look at who these movie moguls were and the image that they were selling to America versus what they were actually doing, which I think, you know, we're all super fans of You Must Remember This around here. I think that's something that show has been doing for years. Um, and seeing this movie version of it, uh, I felt like I was primed for it after years of You Must Remember This. Yeah, and I, and I, I, I think that I failed to do this in my review because it's hard not to, but like I should remind myself that Jack Fincher, who wrote the screenplay, died in 2003. So mm-hmm. so whatever he was reacting to was not this current moment. I don't know how much his son, David, like updated the script or or or, or highlighted certain things. Significant rewrite, according to some of the interviews. OK. That Fincher's given. Yeah. yeah. Well, in that case, then <laughs> I, I, I really think that you could read Fincher scolding a lot of institutional Hollywood, of which he's long been a part. He makes big studio films and saying, you have all this power. You have all of this power to affect people's lives or at least their, their, well, their, affect their thinking, which is their lives. And, and then, you know, that can be brought into deed and action. And what, what are you doing? All you're doing is placating, placating, placating. And will won't any of you stand up and actually speak truth to power, whether that be Trump, whether that be, you know, insidious studio heads who claim liberalism but donate to terrible causes or, or whatever it is. And, and I think that, you know, he, he's saying it doesn't even have to work. It, it, it doesn't have to be, you know, 100 percent effective. You know, Citizen Kane didn't like change America's idea of reclusive, weird, all controlling billionaires. But you can try. And that's something. And here's this whole Hollywood system built to make art that should speak to reality. And right now, I I would I, one my one read of Mank is that he is saying that that Hollywood is, has failed in that mission. Mm. So I love old films and old Hollywood uh, history and stuff like that. And so I would think that you know Mank would be very much for me. But watching it, and I, we mentioned Amanda Seyfried earlier, and I do, th- I think she's incredible in the film, and I think she deserves whatever uh, is coming her way in terms of accolades. But Mank, I'm going to put Mank in the same bucket that I put The Irishman and Roma, which is like films that I admire, and I really like that these very talented filmmakers have been given the Netflix dump truck of money to make like the exact film that they want to make. That I admire the technique, I admire the artistic liberty that, you know, has allowed them to make this. 
you know, two of those films at least are incredibly personally important to those filmmakers, but they're not like sparking love in my heart. That's mm. how I feel about all three of those movies. They all three of them have left me like more impressed than in love, uh, if that makes sense. It's funny how there's just one every year now, like the big technically accomplished Netflix movie by a big deal director. Uh, you can kind of like set your clock by it. Right. I, I mean, I. I found a lot to think about and to engage with, and I have thought a lot about Mank since I watched it. Um, but I, I think finding something to love is exactly right, Joanna. And, like, David Fincher movies are not known for inspiring love. Like, this is what he does. Although the last movie he made was Gone Girl, which was just, like, like cool and calculating and super fun. Um, I don't which, know. I love The Social Network. Like, Yeah, that's true. I've, but that I've, feels like the I mean, Sorkin-y half of it, right? Maybe. <laughs> it's just like something about that movie, man. Or Andrew um, Garfield, maybe, is, is the, <laughs> the X factor there. But I feel like I feel like Fincher has... Like, I was impressed reading some of, of Fincher's interviews about, like, the technical... Like, the way in which they made the sound designed yeah. sound old. Or the film, you know, the, the film stock put, like, real the real blips in there and stuff like that. Like, all of that I thought was cool. Really cool. But overall, I actually found it kind of distracting to my film-watching experience. So, um, yeah. And I don't know if it's just, like, I have trouble connecting with old men doing performances like this because I didn't, you know, love it. Love his Oscar winning one either. But but that all well, that being I, said, I think it's you funny know. you say old man because he's about 30 years too old for the role. <laughs> I, I, it, yeah, there is a mo- moment where he says he's 43 years old and you kind of like do a spit take. But but then again, but he's Herman also playing Mankiewicz, in his 30s earlier. I mean, in other parts. Yeah, of the movie. That's true. I mean, but yeah. Herman Winkowitz also like drank and smoked very heavily. Like you can imagine him looking not so much younger than Gary Oldman does So now, do I. I don't look like Gary Oldman. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I jewel hard. Um, you, you're just out there drying out yeah, in the California desert yeah, as we speak. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, 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 I understand. Um, and I think that, you know, that sort of muted reaction to the film um, or just sort of like, I appreciate it, but I didn't, you know, connect to it. I think that's that, from what I've seen, that's been pretty common. But I think there is stuff in it that's pretty moving. I mean, I, I think that the way that Seyfried's character is handled... You know, she plays Marion Davies, who is Randall first lover, but also from some accounts, including Mankiewicz's, was like a, a real talent whose career actually was hurt by her association with Hearst, yeah. not helped in in the way that it was sort of rumored. I like the bit with Lily Collins's character, who plays Mankiewicz's nurse-ish caretaker. I loved Lily Collins. You know, in this. and there's a nice yeah. little button at the end that I won't spoil that just gives the movie a little bit of like a kind of corny Hollywood hopeful uplift kind of thing. Um, And I I think that like it's in there if you're really, you know, if you really want to dig for it. But I think that like as dense as the movie is asking anyone to really dig for anything is maybe a tall order. I did come out wanting to know more about Marion Davies, who I had up to that point only known from the film Cat's Meow, where she's portrayed by Kirsten Dunst. Um, (laughs) And, you know, that film made by Peter Bogdanovich is like a, a, a pretty much a huge fiction based on a Hearst scandal. But th- I listened, there is an episode of You Must Remember This about Marion Davies and I fired it up and listened to it and it was really, really enjoyable. So thanks, Karina. And um, that is the figure that I walk away wanting to know more about. And a lot of that is down to Seyfried's performance where she's got the perfect face for this, right? You know, just oh like this beautiful, yeah. huge eyes and stuff like that. And, and, and just the way she has to, you know, she's playing like, bubbly and light and fun and and funny and then there's just like a lot going on underneath and um yeah I, I really loved it yeah overall 
Uh, yeah, because she's, you know, you've seen Amanda Seyfried do light and bubbly and fun, and we know that she's like, per- looks perfect for the role, but she's got this like depth to her, this like hard earned wisdom. Like, you get why she and Mankiewicz had this connection that um, I don't think it's ever really implied to be romantic. They just like admire each other, really. And then why what he did in Citizen Kane would have hurt because you watch I, I rewatched Citizen Kane last week. It's on HBO Max. You know, hard recommend. Good movie. Um, and the depiction, movie, yeah. <laughs> the like Marion Davies figure <laughs> in Citizen Kane. It's really like it's not unsympathetic to her, but it's pretty hard on her. Um, and it like I think that is the big emotional point of the movie is how he turned someone like Marion Davies into that character in Citizen Kane. Yeah, and then tried to be like. It's not her. And you're just like, man, you're like, dude, it's not worked <laughs> that way. But like at, at the same time, he has a personal sort of sorrow about the fact that like, you know, she had to get involved. But like she's dating William Randolph first. <laughs> like, yeah. like, so talk about complicity, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 I think that that's the thing that one of the little points that the film is making is that like this kind of access and this cozy kind of going to dinner parties and you might have to kind of disrupt that. You might have to sacrifice that if it means saying in whatever artistic form that is something approaching the right thing. And I think that the way that he mourns the loss of friendship maybe, but also took the risk and, and is sort of ambivalent about that choice is kind of the point. Like it's, the, it was the right thing to do. It wasn't the right thing to do. And you just have to kind of weigh that and, and move forward hopefully in, in truth. Well, we'll talk about Make More. Uh, I think we'll get more into the Hollywood history and find some people who might know more about this whole thing than we do for when it comes on Netflix on December 4th. But I, really, um, I really do recommend that episode, if you must remember this. It's, a sh- it's an early one, so it's kind of a shorty. And y- you can listen to it before watching Mank, and it won't like spoil any of the movie for you. It'll just give you some nice Hearst context. Because Hearst, played by Charles Dance, who's great, fantastic, is mostly a background character. Um, you know what I mean? So to give a little bit more of the context uh, to go with the film, I thought was really useful. Oh, well, actually, speaking of Charles Dance, I do have a transition now because you see Charles Dance show up in Mank. You're like, aha, mean, mean old millionaire. Know where that's going. Uh, and he's also on The Crown this season, um, briefly, uh, where if you know your British royal family history, you know what happens to Lord Mountbatten. And I did not, oh, by no. the way. <laughs> not a, a great r- ending for him. I had a real shock there. Don't Google what happened to Mount, Mountbatten. And like, that's weird because, I mean, we're, gonna, we're just about to talk about this. We're about to talk about Crown season four and how how wild it is that we're up to parts of the crown that were happening when we were alive. And it's a very different show when that's the case. And I just don't know. I've been tracing the character of Mountbatten all through the first three seasons of the crown. And I had no idea what happened there. Well, so, I guess I, that's oops. a benefit to watching it as an American where like a lot of this history is like a little bit more vague. Like, yeah. uh, and you know, I think this is relevant to talk about like the Thatcher era is something that I kind of have a very minor understanding of. And as I, I've said, I don't think on the show before, like the way, the extent to which uh, British leftists hated Margaret Thatcher like, until she died and the day she died, like people celebrated in the streets. I, uh, I didn't understand, but I feel like I have a better sense of it now. But Margaret Thatcher on this season, along with a lot of other things, is really interesting. And in true Peter Morgan style, is like a big figure who is made a little bit more complex. I've only watched the first four episodes of the season. Um, so, and, you know, most people listening to this haven't watched any. But I think we can talk about it in broad strokes about what the crown's bringing to us, right? Yeah, I mean, it's finally getting to the, you know, <laughs> I saw someone on Twitter or something being like, the crown seasons one through three or it was like the the longest pilot episode ever because like <laughs> it's like now we're getting to Diana and it's really exciting and um and I, I can see their point. But you know, I, I think that 
you know, British friends of mine think that the crown is royalist scum and it's not worth watching and they cannot understand why Americans like it. But I think it's just what you said, Katie, is, is this stuff is not immediate to us. And so what I would worry about, though, is that its portrayal of Thatcher doesn't, at least what I've seen so far of is the four episodes, is dig in quite to what exactly was so bad about her policies. And, you know, in casting Gillian Anderson, who is beloved of many things, including, you know, the X-Files as long ago as that, as recently as The Fall and, and her stage work, that that sort of royalist scum <laughs> uh, <laughs> interest in humanizing power, because power above all is what the show is reverent to, I think is maybe a problem. Also a problem is I know that she sounded like that, but like Gillian Anderson is Thatcher. I just, it's just, it feels like a crazy performance to me. It sounds like Voldemort. She sounds like Voldemort. It's really crazy. Yeah. It's interesting. I've watched all of season four and not that that makes me any qualified one way or another, but I think what's valuable to me, but the first three seasons of the crown, or I would say specifically the first two with Claire Foy as Elizabeth, it really helps me better understand what is going on 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 the non-Diana side of this conflict in a way that I didn't understand uh, from the outside looking in growing up. Because if you think of Elizabeth as a young woman, as a young queen, as a young queen in a troubled marriage with uh, infidelities and stuff like that, and then you think of her lack of sympathy or what is there, you know, what is there in her relationship to Diana? I think that's really interesting to me. And if we didn't have those seasons, I I, I mean, I know your friends aren't saying we shouldn't have had seasons one through three, but like, I just find those seasons so helpful. Last season, I think was a little dry and a little uh, here or there, you know what I mean? But I think having the first two seasons, some of the last season really just like helps me get what's going on with all these other royals surrounding Diana sometimes literally but the Diana of it all is of course where like a lot of the soap and the juices and it's fascinating and like not to keep plugging other podcasts but this podcast that Katie turned me on to you're wrong about just concluded a four episode series about Diana five 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 episodes yeah five episode series about Diana based on like reading uh, you know the two major uh, biographies that are out about her and I learned a lot some of it is reflected in the crown, but there's just like a lot more to Diana than the English Rose sort of idea that we were, you know, I was brought up in the age of the Diana Beanie Baby. So like that's, you oh, know, we all? <laughs> it, was, it was just like how I felt about that. Um, I was brought up in a Diana Beanie Baby. Oh. I was very small. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> cute. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so like. Diana is a fascinating character beyond what I knew. And the crown kind of gets to it. But as you say, Richard, it is a very, you know, Peter Morgan's fascination with the royals, I think, sometimes gives him rose colored glasses. And he doesn't and he doesn't like he doesn't want it to get too messy because he doesn't want the royals to watch it and feel offended. And so, you know, they they sort of rub the corners off things sometimes. And he's also talked about how he doesn't want to, which I understand he doesn't want to do, I think he said he has like a 10-year rule. He doesn't want to do anything that happened like, so he doesn't want to do like Harry and Meghan and stuff like that because yeah. he wants like that level of distance so he can get like the full picture and not like really fully offend people who are alive. Well, also if he, if he did Harry and Meghan, he'd have to put a person of color on the show, which he <laughs> clearly is not interested in doing. Listen, the royals don't give him a lot to work with. There. No, I yeah. know, I know, I know. 
No, Andrew. Andrew is tricky. Although there's a, uh, I, I don't think he's been on the show before. But when in the show introduces him this season, it's kind of like the perfect setup for someone who has gotten himself in the kind of trouble that Andrew has gotten himself into. You kind of see how he got that way, and I think this season is just really has been good about the poison that these people put into the world, like because of how they were brought up. The whole arrangement of Charles and Diana's marriage. Like, I think Josh O'Connor has done such a great job of continuing to make Charles a sympathetic figure. I love Josh O'Connor, Even though yeah. he was just horrible to Diana. Um, and you know, everyone was kind of horrible to her, and this marriage never should have happened. And that's, it's a very easy stance to take now. It's the stance the show takes. Um, and I think it's it's doing better by Camilla thus far, because she's a really important figure who got really brushed aside in season three, kind of inexplicably, because she is going to be the Queen of England at some point. And I, I'm glad that they're taking that kind of step by step and being careful with it because I think Charles and Camilla are currently now with, with what they're doing really interesting figures and the sh- the show is allowing them that nuance. Well, it's just that that like generational toxicity, like the fact that like Elizabeth had to endorse was told that she had to endorse certain things and and did and then she's like, "Well, why why isn't the next generation doing that?" you know, and it's wow, just sort good, of like good accent. Um, I think probably all of England would disagree with you, but um <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just sort of like that's it is fascinating. It's really yeah. good. It's, it's Crown is great this season. Get excited for something really yeah. fun and good to watch. I should say about like saying that like the show is just so slavishly devoted to power. I I still think that's true and whether this is intentional or not it is successful this season in that like it kind of does show elizabeth just kind of farting around like because the efficacy of of the crown was dwindling by the 80s and like and the influence of it um i do like that especially in the face of a really strong not in a good way strong uh woman leader in thatcher that elizabeth is so stymied by that you know um yeah because that's always been her narrative you know i think the psychological portraiture of this season that that i've seen is giving way to a lot more nuance than has been on the show uh, in the past. Yeah, there's this fantastic early episode where Margaret Thatcher comes up to Balmoral um, and is kind of like just cold shouldered and like like psychologically tortured by the royal family. And you know she's Margaret Thatcher and that you're not really on her side, but it really makes you feel for her because these people seem like a bunch of monsters. And you see like Margaret, uh, who's, you know, still hot in bottom Carter, and she was such a compelling uh, character in the early seasons. And then she's just always around and you don't know what she does. And she didn't do anything. And, you, and it's noticeable this season, I think, in a way where you're like, wow, these people really just like sit in this castle. We should all read Ma'am Darling to find out what Margaret was up to in this era, because apparently yeah. she was up to a lot. Uh, um, but not fit the, for this show. <laughs> the, the like ongoing narrative of Margaret, uh, at least in the Hell of Anna Carter era, is uh, that she wanted to do more. Yeah. And that like, Elizabeth wouldn't let her. Because there's another, you haven't gotten to it, but there is another yeah. like episode around that subject in this season as well. And so it's like, I don't know. I don't know how true that is. I don't know. Peter Morgan. But but I was telling Katie that like I, I love I love the Queen, right? Which Peter Morgan did. When, when did the Queen come out? Do you guys 2006, remember? 2006, okay. Right, which is, um, you know, Helen Mirren's Oscar-winning performance as Queen Elizabeth as she and her family and Tony Blair is played by Michael Sheen sort of deal with the aftermath of Diana's death. And I th- I love that movie. And I think it's a really interesting and informative uh, look at this character. But to think of Helen Mirren on the same trajectory as Claire Foy, like to think of that young woman informing this woman's sort of, you know, what do you mean? <laughs> I have to talk to the public sort of like attitude <laughs> is uh, is really fascinating. Peter Morgan's fascination with the royals, like for better or for worse, is as 
you know, as someone who is not as into the Royals as an employee of Vanity Fair probably should be, I just think it's been educational for these like odd specimens. Um, the you're, you're wrong about this host. I think call them like pandas in a zoo. You know what I mean? Like this is how like these these humans that have been trapped under glass and like how do you behave as a human when you've been like trapped under glass and you've convinced yourself that you've got like a noblesse oblige, you know, purpose to having been made an animal in a zoo sort of thing. I don't know. It's it's fascinating to me. Um, and I watched, I, as I was talking to Joanna on Friday and I watched the, my, the end of my screeners of the Crown and then watched some of the Queen, which I hadn't revisited in a long time. Um, I mean, just talk about a place to escape and think about power and think about the way that the world works. But um, you're going to get wrapped up in a soap opera that's separate from your own life. Uh, I have enjoyed the time I spent with it. Well, that does it for this week's show. Thank you for joining us all in this post-election period as we get our heads in order um, and escape into some movies and British royalty drama. Um, you can find us at VanityFair.com. You can read Richard's review of Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, Joanna, anything you are writing that you want to plug this week? Um, I think just that that piece on the TV Academy and the Emmys, uh, which should be up this week. I wrote a little something about SNL, which I actually thought was... Um, I had a great time watching this weekend, which has not been my experience, and I honestly can't tell if it's just because I was in a good mood or if the show is uh, good again now that they don't have to do Trump all the time. And um, just covering The Mandalorian with Anthony Bresdekin, that's about it. Yeah. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Right, Laws. And Joanna. Joe this. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of how we spent election week goes to Katie Rich. Drank and smoked very heavily. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the review's director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.